Well, good morning everybody. It's approaching Easter and although we're not beholden to feasts and calendar days, we can use this time to remind ourselves just what Jesus went through for us. Remembering him is something that we're told to do on a very regular basis. So let's do that together this morning and see if it does not make us fall in love just a little bit more with the one to whom we've been betrothed. This week I'm going to commence the story of Jesus' final week on earth, or at least his final week in which he was clothed in a body just like yours and mine. He did, of course, spend some more time on earth in his new resurrected body. Next week, Andy Wright is going to finish the rest of this story. Actually, I'd like to start just a little earlier than his last week and take us back to a very real place in the very north of Israel at the foot of Mount Hermon. In Jesus' time, this place was called Caesarea Philippi. And today it's known as Banias, B-A-N-I-A-S. Banias is a pantheon. This is a word that simply means many gods, pantheon, a place where they worshipped many gods. And as you stand there today, you can see the porticos that have been carved into the rock where all of those dead gods were placed. Virtually every god of the Roman Empire could be found at this place. Just before Jesus headed to his death, he brought his disciples to this very spot and he asked them this question, who do you think that I am? What an extraordinary place to ask that question, surrounded by stone gods. The architect of our universe asked them, who do you think that I am? Now for very good reasons, Jesus had never really told them who he was. It's like there was a great secret going on. Even the demons were kept silent and ordered not to speak when they said too much about who Jesus was. The disciples answered, some say this and some say that, but it was Peter that finally came out with it. I know who you are. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, for no man has revealed this to you, but my father in heaven, Jesus told him. So now the matter was settled, they knew who he was, the dots had been connected, and it was time to do what he had come for, to become our scapegoat, to be the one who would provide justice by taking on himself our punishment. He was to now bear what we deserved. It says that he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, knowing full well what was set before him. He first went to Bethany and from there he went on to Jerusalem. And it's long, not long before he and his disciples reached the top of the Mount of Olives. And there laid out below him Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the city that God loved and still does. And as Jesus took in the sight, we're told that he wept. He wept for the city and he wept for her inhabitants. Word got out that this famous teacher was coming. Oppressed by the Romans, the Jews were fervently praying for their Messiah. They were waiting for Messiah ben David, Messiah the son of David, who would come as a conquering king and save them from their oppressors, save them from their trouble, save them from the Romans. 
This explains the cry, Hosanna, Hoshanna. It means God save us or God rescue us. The tragedy was this, that their Messiah actually was standing before them, but he was first to come as Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, the son of Joseph, a suffering servant before he was going to come as a conqueror, which he is still to do. Jesus entered through the Golden Gate. This has been bricked up by the Muslims today. They know the Jewish scriptures that foretell his coming through this very gate. How strange that they believe a brick wall can stand against our hero. The fickle and misunderstanding crowd soon turned against Jesus as he turned left into the temple courts, turning on his own people as he attacked the Jewish moneylenders rather than turning right and dealing with the Romans in Fort Antonio. His days were numbered. Of course, his days were not numbered by the Jews or even the Romans, but they were numbered by his father and him together. It was them that had come up with this plan for salvation, the salvation of men and women. A short time later, as they partook of the Pesach, or Pesach the Passover meal, they ate this together. He was to pass some bread to Judas of Kerioth, or Judas Iscariot as we call him. This piece of bread has a special place in a Passover meal. It's known as Hillel's Sop. And it's always given by the host to somebody that he clearly loves. Isn't that very meaningful? Well, later that evening, they all took a walk. In the valley between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives lies the olive groves of Gethsemane. Jesus asked his disciples to pray and then he himself withdrew a short way to speak with his dad. The only one that really understood what he was going to go through. His anxiety was so great that blood burst out from his forehead. This was not uncommon. It happened in the World War I trenches. It happens to people who are facing execution. The capillaries at your forehead are so close to the skin that at times of great anxiety and stress they can burst. Time and time again his disciples would fall asleep much to Jesus' frustration. Finally the time came for him to be betrayed and even now his kindness shone through as he healed a Roman guard. He was taken up these very steps to the villa of the high priest, a man called Joseph ben Caiaphas. It was at the top of these steps that Jesus heard a cockerel crowing. He turned in concern for his dear friend Peter, who broke down in tears when he realised what had just happened. A very moving part of scripture. First, Jesus was taken to a man called Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he was a previous high priest, and he questioned, questioned Jesus. Why do you question me, Jesus answered. All that I've done and all that I've said was public. I said it at synagogues. It was heard by many. Let them testify. 
Immediately an officer struck him and he responded, If I've spoken wrongly, then testify that I have, but why do you strike me? He was then taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, and here he kept largely silent. Except when asked the direct question, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he simply answered, You have said it, and now I too say it. Behold, the Son of Man will soon be sitting at the right hand of God. And with those very brave words, his fate was sealed. They spat in his face, they struck him, ridiculed and challenged him. The high priest tore his own clothes and called out for death. The two great powers who were normally living at a place called Caesarea Maritime on the coast had, done, had come to Jerusalem as they always did during the feasts. Pontius Pilate was one of them and Herod Antipas, one of Herod the Great's sons. First Jesus was taken to this place. This is the judgment gate of Pontius Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked. It is as you say, Jesus answered, and Pilate marvelled at him and could find no fault in the man. There was a man in captivity that deserved punishment. His name too was Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Did you realise that Barabbas' first name was Jesus? Interestingly, Barabbas means son of the father, Bar Abba. And Jesus, son of the Father, who deserved to die, was let off so that our Jesus, of the Son of the Father, could take his place. What an extraordinary picture. We want his blood, the crowd shouted. The soldiers now too began to mock him. During all of this, he was sent from here to the Jerusalem palace of Herod Antipas. Herod was delighted he'd never met this famous teacher and he wanted to hear him speak. He was hoping to see a miracle and he was bitterly disappointed. It says that he questioned Jesus with many, many words, but Jesus answered him with not one, silent like a lamb to the slaughter. It says that in the face of this silence, Herod and his men of war treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him before sending him back to Pilate. But this period of time following Jesus' arrival at the city is often referred to as the time of Jesus' passion. Passion's a bit of a misunderstood word here. It comes from the Latin word passio and it simply means great suffering or intense suffering. It's interesting, isn't it, that there are times when we are called to suffer. Peter tells us that we should rejoice when we share in Jesus' suffering. Paul says in Philippians 3 that all things are rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship or the sharing in his suffering. What is also a great comfort is to know that he understands our suffering. For those that have been falsely accused, and there aren't too many things that are more deeply damaging than false accusation, he's been there before you, and you share in his suffering. For those that suffer occasionally, perhaps with anxiety, 
understanding that he sweat drops of blood in great anguish and great anxiety is a comfort he understands. For those that understand what it is to be betrayed and to be denied, you understand what Jesus went through and he understands what you go through. Take courage and take strength from this. He was mocked and he was scoffed, he was abused, he was beaten, just like many people. Our Messiah understands our suffering. For those that suffer for their faith, we're we are supposed to consider this a pure joy. I've heard a few sermons that talk about the problem of suffering, but the writers of the New Testament considered it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Extraordinary. I'd like to draw to a close with Paul, not the apostle, but a man called Paul Schneider. He was a pastor in Berlin and he dared to preach against Hitler and his congregation begged him to stop because they didn't want to lose him. They loved him so much. Well, one night at three in the morning, the Gestapo came for him and they bundled him off into a lorry and he went off smiling, we're told. He was taken to Buchenwald concentration camp and because he tried there to protect some Jews who were being whipped, they strung him up by his thumbs and they whipped him. And over time, they deliberately starved him to death. They put him in a wooden coffin and sent him back to his wife and his young, young son, saying that he died of pneumonia. And you can read his letters today in a book, the letters that he sent to his wife. The book's called The Pastor of Buchenwald. And those letters are full of two words. They're full of the words joy and they're full of the words gratitude. I'm so filled with such joy and I'm so filled with gratitude towards God, he would cry out in his letters. Paul Schneider's become a bit of a hero of mine. A hero who, a hero who shows us a dimension to the suffering for Christ. If we suffer then let us lift our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, counting it all joy that he is able to perfect our faith through tough times as well as through good times. He's promised to deliver a clean and perfect bride, and he's shown us through his own example how we are to respond in difficult times and when we suffer. I don't know about you, but when I consider all that he went through for me, or that he suffered on my behalf, and that even today he's interceding for me, I don't know whether to weep in humility or to shout in rejoicing. Jesus was very honest with us. He said that in this world we'll have big trouble or great trouble, but he said, be of good cheer for I have overcome. Of course, just as the sufferings of Jesus are ours or can be ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Jesus. God bless you all.